House of Cards Chapter 50 is over, but we are just getting started here on the House of Cards post-show recap. And now, here are the guys who never have we ever been more excited to talk about an episode of House of Cards. I'm Rob Sestrino. Here is Zach Brooks. Zach, how are you? Rob, I've been thinking maybe we should add Antonio Mazzaro to this recap. (laughs) I think he can do for you the things I can't do, and and we can just go beyond podcasting. Yeah, so let's go beyond podcasting. Well, if you think it's a good idea, well, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) I might have made that same joke after the Three Trim episode. There's a good chance I did. Wow. You know, it's funny because the Three Trim, I believe, was season two, episode 11. Here we are, season four, episode 11. And we go back to the rule of three here in the Underwood. Three's company. Three's company. Yes, yeah. exactly. That's right. <laughs> uh, come and knock on my door, uh, Yates. We've been waiting for you. <laughs> okay. Boy. Two guys, a girl, and a pizza place next to Zoe Barnes' apartment. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So a lot to unpack in terms of this new arrangement here for Frank and Claire. Very exciting stuff to talk about. Plus, uh, the campaigning is ongoing. Uh, Tom Hammerschmidt is on his way towards either becoming dead or toppling <laughs> uh, the Underwood administration, one or the other. <laughs> yeah. I got my money in one spot, but we'll see. (laughs) We'll see uh, where that goes. Plus a development, which uh, really we did not see this coming of, you know, five or six episodes. But uh, here we are, Doug pining for uh, Laura Moretti. (laughs) (laughs) And her daughter, Sierra. Sierra Moretti. (laughs) So we will find out what the hell is going on with Doug and Uh, why after such a strong start to season four, why the old Doug is back with a vengeance. Oh, Doug, Doug, Doug. (laughs) Okay. All right. Uh, Plus, it was the return of Freddie as well. Uh, Somebody that I had on my team in the season four callback draft. So uh, an exciting hour of House of Cards all the way around. Zach, how are you doing? Oh, I'm I'm doing good. I'm excited to jump into this episode. But, uh, you know, it's bittersweet as we get to the end. Yeah, we are closing in. We're only two episodes away. And uh, what we want to invite you to do as we're doing this is get your feedback in for the finale. H-O-C at postshowrecaps.com. Very excited about that. Also, uh, we have been experiencing some issues with our House of Cards podcast feed, our dedicated feed, but you can always get all of the episodes at our main iTunes feed on Post Show Recaps, which is postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes or search for Post Show Recaps on your favorite podcatcher. Okay, so let's jump into this. Let's start with the whole Yates thing with Frank and Claire. And of course, you know, we saw the Meacham thing, which was more of a fling. And this does seem to be more of a budding relationship. But boy, doesn't this seem so dangerous right now at a time when (laughs) Frank and Claire are not just in the White House, the president and first lady, but also the president and vice president is going to keep around a love interest for the first lady slash vice president? Yeah, I mean, it's I I guess it's just, you know, Claire needs the emotional support and Frank can only be there so much for her. Um, and, and this really allows them to split off a lot of the 
personal and just focus on the professional on on the campaign and on on being president and vice president together so really yates's job is to be the husband to claire he's gonna sleep with her literally and uh you know i guess in the uh euphemism sense of the words uh then also he's also gonna be like her emotional counsel like he's gonna be her emotional friend and then you know they're gonna like just stay up all night talking and then when it comes to like the business of running the country that'll be where frank steps in yeah and i mean it it might be for the best uh you know they can really focus on on what they need to focus on and not let the uh the emotional aspects and the relationship aspects get in the way and, and cause complications but you know nothing is ever so simple on house of cards so um i'm sure it won't be three's company for long yeah, it's such an interesting time for this to be happening because I do think that, and we'll talk about the Freddie storyline, that we're starting to have this idea of that Freddie is leaving Frank. And Frank gets so upset about this and he ends up basically like trying to pick a fight with Freddie and <laughs> Freddie tells him off and uh, we, we'll discuss all that. But just to go back to what Conway said a couple of weeks ago in this conversation about collecting people. And then for Frank, it seems as though there are fewer and fewer people around that he can feel like are honestly his friends. I mean, really, he had Meacham and he had people around like Freddie, even like a, a Remy. And there were people that around that he could talk to. He has almost nobody except for Claire at this point, And he barely has her. And he used to have Doug. Where's and- Doug? He's on lauramoretti.com all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, D- Doug is... Doug is busy with his brunette woman of the week and, uh, you know, just being obsessed and crazy and all kinds of things. And, yeah, Frank really doesn't have any people, especially at an emotional and personal level, that that he can rely on and that, that he has. And that's why I kind of feel like that there's some irony here in keeping or bringing Yates into the mix to be that person for Claire. Do you feel like also is Yates that person for Frank as well? Is he somewhat of a, and I don't want to like get the gender words wrong. I don't want to say wife or husband for Frank because I think that's probably much more muddy than that. But is Yates around also to be the emotional friend to Frank as well? I mean, I think Frank does want some of that from Yates and, and there could be tension, you know, fighting about over Yates, like a tug of war over Yates between Frank and Claire eventually, because we saw Frank bring Yates into his office and convince Yates not to leave the campaign and to stay on. And, and while he said it was for Claire and he was doing it for Claire, you know, they were having that conversation in the same room where they did have the intimate moment last season. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that there is some uh, some emotional needs from from Frank for Yates. And for Yates, he tells Frank, you know, that he wouldn't do that to Claire in terms of letting the book out. Like, so if Yates had to pick, he would pick Claire. Yeah, it does seem like he is on Team Claire. Yes, he's on Team Claire. I don't know if we're going to end up seeing any sort of Meacham type action or Threecham type action with Frank and Claire and Yates. I, I don't think Frank's up for it. No, I don't. I don't see it. I think it's this is much different than the Threecham. Um, but I do see... You know, and I wonder, we we saw Frank working out with the rowing machine kind of in a different way. He was doing bicep curls with the rowing machine, mm. uh, which I, I had no idea you could do that. Yeah. Uh, but I wonder, if that, I wonder if that's Frank starting to like feel the stress and the pressure from everything. And he did. It did seem like a very tense scene for him. And I wonder if this stress and pressure is going to get to him, especially with the health problems he's having. 
and do we see something ultimately happen because of it? I mean, I, I don't I don't think it would necessarily be a heart attack, but you know, where, where this stress just ultimately gets to him because he doesn't have an outlet or a release that he might have had in the past with Doug or Meacham or Claire, where he doesn't have that release valve anymore. Well, maybe he just wants to look good naked. Maybe he's just going to start working out more and more. Yeah, I hear the best place for Kevin Spacey to do that is the uh, the garage. <laughs> the garage. He's just going to start really, really working out more and more and more. Uh, so when you say a release for him, what do you mean? Like an emotional release? Yeah, like an emotional release. Like just to have to have some. I mean, he's you know he's always had the people that he's working with in politics, whether it's you know a running mate like like Donald Blythe or Garrett Walker or Kathy Durant. But that's on a very professional level. And he's had Claire on both professional level, but also as the person he can smoke cigarettes with and and have the more personal relationship with. And I I do wonder, as you're talking about this, is he losing that part of him that he just doesn't have the the personal relationship? We will see. And uh, only two episodes left to figure this out in this season. But uh, very fun stuff to uh, prognosticate about that scene at the end of the episode uh, was so absurd and interesting of breakfast at the white house uh we have frank and claire and then meacham in the middle and it's almost like he's like their kid that he's sitting there at the breakfast table not a word is said in that scene and did you feel like what was it awkward was it sort of comfortable for everybody involved what was your read on that yeah i mean you know i don't want to judge what people do with their lifestyles but i did write in my notes this is so strange so you know it was just it was definitely weird and frank's reading the newspaper and it felt like you were like watching a family yeah this is maybe the opening to fuller house of cards (laughs) except the newspaper has to be like upside down and when claire goes to drink the coffee it spills all over her i mean there has to be some some gags in there too (laughs) It's just your average American family, uh, president of the United States, who's being uh, with with their kept man, who is the husband to the wife of the, the first lady and the vice president. Just your average uh, American sitcom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Too many cooks in the White House. Yeah. <laughs> what were they eating for breakfast? Speaking of cooking. Oh, man, I, I don't have that. I mean, maybe it was cereal or, <laughs> to or, me. or ham. No, it was Maybe, not. It was not. It, I, I thought it was a very odd thing that they were eating for breakfast. What it looked to me was that they were all having coffee, but it appeared to be an apple, which was sliced up. A sliced oh, that's apple. right. Yeah. That seems quite odd to me to have that as a breakfast food. And again, as uh, Joel Hooper might tell us on Twitter tomorrow, maybe an apple is just an apple. But did you think, was there anything in terms of like the apple's traditional meaning of temptation and the Garden of Eden? Did you feel like that that was uh, some symbolism to such an odd breakfast food? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I did, as soon as you started mentioning that, I did remember they were eating an apple and I thought that was pretty odd. Even an orange would be a much more common food to have at the breakfast table than an apple. Yeah, I mean, is it that that Frank and that Frank and Claire kind of succumb to temptation of having this third person who's not the two of them, and really letting somebody into um, to something that's a, a very private life where they have a lot of secrets that they need to keep to themselves? And I also thought it was very interesting that the episode goes to black and the final credits start as Kevin Spacey takes a slice of the apple and as he bites on it, boom, cut to black. <laughs> 
So I just thought that that was all very interesting in terms of the choice and the way that the episode ended on that note. Yeah, no, I I think that's a really good observation to um, to see how that plays out. You know, did, was this a big mistake to let to let you in? Do you think this is a big mistake? I can't see how this is all one big happy ending where it's like, and then uh, Yates moved in with Claire and I, and then we just all lived happily ever after. Just the three of us in the White House and nobody ever knew. None of these uh, snooping reporters and there was no leaks about any of this. So the first lady is sleeping with another man in the White House. And uh, even though there's a million people around and everybody knows uh, us coming and going, it all just uh, worked out fine. And we have seen plenty of affairs throughout the the series uh, on both Frank and Claire's side, but um, this isn't just an affair. This is this seems like it's a this is a relationship. I mean, and- people are on the beat of covering not just the first lady, but also covering the vice presidential candidate for the United States. The quote unquote speechwriter is with her everywhere. Are they just they're working on speeches twenty four hours a day? Yeah, and we've already had. Uh, speculation about the Underwood marriage, too, and and where things were going with that. Now, you have this contrast between Conway and Frank is talking about this in the episode of that he is just like this fighter pilot image where he's like this strapping, virile guy that I've thrown that word around quite a bit about Conway. And here's Frank, who is uh, weak and old and almost like he's taking all these pills. He can't even fly around. And now there is a, another man in the White House who is having an extramarital affair with his wife. And he knows about it. Yeah, and he's okay with it. He's okay with it. Yeah. How's that going to look? He wants what he wants Claire to be happy, I think. And he wants Claire to be successful and be able to focus on being the vice president and winning this election. And if that's the sacrifice he has to make, uh, he seems willing to make that sacrifice, but um, is it the right choice? So who could potentially get that sort of story out there in the world? Like who would leak that to Conway? I mean, there are a lot of people. I mean, I think the first person who comes to mind is Kathy Durant. Hmm. Yeah. She's already got, you know, she claims to be loyal to Frank, but she just seems way too loyal too easily. Um, so I could see her getting wind of this and, and this being what she needs to go to Conway. We've got Doug, Seth and Leanne. They all seem like they're on the side of Frank and Claire. Well, but- let's go back and talk about Durant and where she is that Frank talked about her in the episode when she was giving him a counter proposal. He says that uh, when a dog bites you, you either need to put a muzzle on it or put it down right now. She's in a muzzle. Uh, and again, more imagery about a dog. Uh, potentially having to get put down. So for Durant, do you think that she will ultimately need to be put down? Yeah, something has to give here. I can't imagine that this uh, this relationship between Frank and Durant is is what's going to last throughout uh, the next you know season or so, two seasons of the show. Um, you know, I don't think she's fully on his side. She just it just seemed out of character how willfully she's doing his bidding now and doing whatever he says. So I think she's biding her time and, and waiting for the right move to make um, and not, you know, not make the wrong move like she did the last time where she were kind of bitter in the face. Um, but I did notice that when Frank's talking to Kathy, she's in all white. It's, it's like very striking that he's hmm. in all dark. She's I in all white. That. 
And, um, you know, we haven't talked a lot about the black and white thing too much uh, the last few episodes, but I think it's definitely still something to pay attention to, especially under the lens of black being power, white being less power or or weakness. Um, We saw Frank in all white when he's going through with the doctors and he's having his evaluation with the doctor. And that's a very weak moment for Frank. You know, I think we've seen Frank's hair get whiter throughout the season. Well, I think that's been such an interesting contrast, too, with last season. It was Claire's hair color that they were playing with, where she was blonde, and then she felt strong, and she went to the brunette. They said, no, nah, no, you have to go back to the to the blonde hair. And this season, it was Frank, whose hair was much darker at the start of the season, to now it's completely white at this point in the season. Yeah. And so, I mean, I've I've definitely started noticing that, um, again, as we get towards the end of the season that we're seeing a lot of the black being power. So, um, you know, and it changes from scene to scene. So we saw Frank in all black when he's he's dressing down Durant and she's in all white because she's really powerless at this point. Let's talk about Ico and what's going on there. So Frank has a plan which he feels like is going to get him back on the right track, at least in terms of the poll numbers, where he's going to get Russian troops to go in on the ground and go into Syria and be able to stop what Ico is doing. And it feels like, okay, this is a pretty smart plan. And so he's got this going on. And then basically like there's this whole sort of interruption to the plan that comes from Conway's side. And we have uh, the general, even though he thinks it's a good plan, Conway is like, uh, what do you think? We're going to let him take all the credit for something. We're just going to let Ico uh, like there'll be a problem for Frank Underwood and then we'll clean it up in November. And the general was really upset about that. But uh, Conway has sort of exposed himself to us at least to have some very Frank Underwood tendencies. But then there was this conversation between Frank Underwood and Conway where Frank was like, now look, Conway, don't, don't you want to save America? What, don't you want to do what's best for America? And Conway is like, no way, sucker. Nuh-uh. He says, you're, you're asking me to help you by appealing to my sense of duty. Yeah. And a uh, sense of duty to somebody who used to be a soldier. Didn't you think that after they hung up the phone, Frank and Doug would be like, okay, gotcha. Now let Doug uh, go run this on all the TV networks that uh, we got him on tape talking about how he doesn't care about America. Uh, No, I actually wasn't expecting that. I wasn't sure where they would go with that. Why not do that? Why not? (laughs) And then say, oh, no, it was, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Robot hacked the White House. And then here's a call between Conway and Frank Underwood. Mr. Robot. So they could just bring Garrett Walker back in and right. That's um, the connection. They could blame him again. That's the connection. Yeah. Like uh, Evil yeah. Corp. Uh, we don't know what how this happened, but there's been some sort of a leak, and uh, we I, we don't know. Uh, can you explain this? It's my evil twin might have done it <laughs> from Evil Corp. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Conway also does say at the same time, "Don't believe everything you see on TV." Yeah, I mean, wouldn't that have effectively ended? I know it's highly illegal. But, I mean, of all the illegal things that Frank Underwood did, like, doesn't that seem like, uh, I mean, wouldn't that have ended Conway's candidacy in a flat second? Yeah, it would. But I I think it's just one of those where, I mean, what does that do for Frank Underwood, too? Like, that he would, he would, you know, potentially be behind uh, exposing this about Conway and this is the lengths he would go, especially when there is the threat of ICO. You want to publicly let ICO know what our plans were and kind of how things work. 
just seems like it's a very short-sighted plan. It just seemed very implausible. Like, I understand like you're together in a closed room, but to like say that sort of stuff over the phone that he was saying just seemed like, and again, like I, aren't all of his phone calls and everything going to be public record or something? No, you know? just his email. <laughs> oh, just his email. This is, this is why you say it over the phone. It's perfect. Yeah. I don't know. I thought that Conway was pretty reckless there in that conversation. He doesn't know Frank Underwood's on speakerphone with, you know, some reporter uh, that's right there next to him. And I, I don't know. I thought, I thought that was uh, very implausible that one candidate would say that to the sitting president. Yeah, I'll be careful next time I'm on the phone with you. Now I know how you're uh, now I know your tricks <laughs> record people when they're on the phone. And <laughs> yes, yes. I <laughs> Full disclosure. Full disclosure, uh, 99% of the conversation I'm having with people on the phone is are, are being recorded. <laughs> Just, this closer. conversation isn't being recorded, right? I mean, is, that is kind of record. my thing. No, these are on the record. So Conway, don't call me and then uh, talk about how like, uh, you don't think I'm really going to do that, right? Come on. Come on. I did- I did really like how Conway's on the phone with Frank, just walking past reporters, like waving at them. And he's got a big smile on his face, but he's having this really menacing conversation. Yeah, that was that was a pretty good. uh, That was a good juxtaposition. Okay, speaking of menacing conversations, uh, let's talk about Tom Hammerschmidt and what he's up to (laughs) in this episode, because he really is putting this whole operation into motion. He is back at The Washington Post. Uh, We saw him in this episode have conversations with Remy with Freddie, He's trying to uncover more and more dirt. At first, Remy doesn't really give him anything. He goes and sees Freddie, gets his ass kicked by Freddie, <laughs> yeah. who is not a snitch. No, he, uh, he might be mad at Frank Underwood, but he's not going to snitch on he's him. not a snitch. Okay. But finally, that Remy and Hammerschmidt are at the bar, and it turns into a game of never have I ever. I guess that Remy is playing as Frank Underwood, and so Hammerschmidt throws out a bunch of allegations and uh, Frank Underwood needs to drink for every single one of those. Yeah, that I mean, that was an interesting way for him to give up this information. And he's probably going to need some more beer the way that, that was going. That's what he said. We're going to need more beer. Yeah. But, we'll be uh, out of beer at that bar. Yeah. Have a new keg. What if you just happen to be like sitting next to them and you're like, what is this weird drinking game they're playing with these like really insane, uh, these insane moments? Yeah, we got into all of these different things of, uh, you know, never have I ever uh, perjured myself. Uh, Never have I ever struck a deal with Raymond Tusk in exchange for a pardon. Uh, Never have I ever conspired to impeach the sitting president. Yeah. So. I wouldn't be able to drink for any of those. I haven't done any of those things. No, I have not. Be a boring game. <laughs> be a boring game. So not that fun to uh, play with Hammerschmidt, but we do see him. Then he is going to start to take this information and he's building up his own sort of a uh, grant land, uh, the ringer ask type task force. Oh, I, I call it spotlight spotlight. <laughs> yeah. it, it really <laughs> reminded me of spotlight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so he's got this team together. Now, when he's having this meeting with the higher up at the Washington Post, I don't know what her name is, that she was talking about like security. And they said, hey, look, are we worried about Underwood? They said, well, no, he's a crook, but he's not a killer. Yeah, I thought that was really weird that he said that because doesn't he know, like, isn't he on the Zoe Barnes thing? I thought that was what he what started this investigation was that he he knew that Frank killed Zoe. I mean, not just that, but Pete Rousseau also. So Hammerschmidt just seems super naive here. Now, maybe he just felt like, oh, yeah, we are going to need security. But if I tell her we're going to need security, she's not going to want to do this. 
Yeah, that could be. It also seems like the kind of thing you don't want to say that. It's like, oh, yeah, nothing could go wrong. You know, like you're just tempting fate by saying he's a crook, not a killer. You're putting that onto the ether. You know, it's not a good idea. Yeah. And then what was one of the only things that Hammerschmidt wanted from her at the post? Uh, he said he needs to work with a dog that won't bark at me. Well, I thought he was saying he needs uh, office space where his dog won't bark at him. Oh, huh. OK, I thought he was talking about her. Maybe that that makes sense. But, you know, again, a, a dog metaphor one way or the other. Both things could make sense. I just think yeah. that like, oh, uh, really t- bringing up Hammerschmidt's dog again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and there were there were a couple other dog references in this episode, too. So. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I, I like to go back and check that whether he said that I want a place where my dog won't bark at me or if he was implying that she was the dog who was going to be barking at him of like, hey, you're out of order. Hammerschmidt. Yeah. yeah, I thought he was telling her, like, I need I need my space to, to run my spotlight team. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he writes on the board manipulation, deception, corruption. Those are the big three for Frank Underwood. Those are a lot of scrabble points. So good for him. Yeah. The big three. And uh, he could make it all disappear. Just like uh, eventually Tom Hammerschmidt's all going to disappear. Tom and his dog. You know, he is away from his dog a lot during the day. Now, if he's going to be in this spotlight room. Yeah. Uh, Now, do you feel like that we're seeing Hammerschmidt on a definite collision course to the death pool here in House of Cards? I mean, do you feel like that he's going to survive? What are the odds you're going to give him to survive these next two episodes? I actually think he will survive the next two episodes. Okay. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think he'll survive season five. This show does not necessarily tie up all these loose ends. I think that season two did a good job of tying up like a lot of the loose ends in terms of Tusk and like uh, Fang and all of those storylines. But then just really introduced the story that Frank was going to be the president, but we didn't get to see any of that. Season three ended on a real cliffhanger where we ended up just picking up a week after going into season four. So we'll see ultimately uh, where we stand now. How close are we to the election right now? I got to think we're still not that close. I thought at this point in the season, we would have been further along, but yeah, we haven't seen a debate between Conway and Underwood. We've only got two episodes left. So maybe we're not going to get to the election. Yeah. And we've got lots, we've seen lots of shots of people outside and people don't seem bundled up like it's wintertime or anything like that. So um, we're not that, you know, it, it gets cold here in November, so we're not getting close to November. Could we potentially get through election night in the finale? I think we could get. Yeah, I could see the finale ending with some sort of uh, cliffhanger. Does Frank Underwood win the election? Does Conway, um, you know, or something else? I, I will get some sort of cliffhanger at the end of the finale, I think. Let's talk about President Underwood and Freddie, who had a triumphant return here in episode 11, could not let the season go by. I actually thought that once we saw the exterior for Freddy's and how disheveled it was, I said, oh, this is our sort of we're not going to get Freddy. And then we're just going to sort of like get the exterior of Freddy's. And that's going to be basically as good as having him around. But sure enough, in this very episode, we get to see him. He was working as a gardener in season three. Here, he's now working in the floral department. Yeah, the flower, the White House flower shop. White House flower shop. And I don't know, it seems like he doesn't like that job, but he's leaving the White House to go work in a different flower shop. Yeah, I, and he said, you know, you can teach an old dog new tricks, apparently. So he's 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 learned to be a florist. Now, did they have to just make him a florist because then it would make sense for him? Like, he couldn't leave, like, the White House to go get, like, a different gardening job at somebody's, like, house. Like, somebody else is opening up a business uh, he, it would be weird if he was like, yeah, I'm going to go join this, uh, you know, my sister-in-law's gardening business. 
Yeah, the whole thing was that whole scene was kind of weird because we haven't seen Freddy the whole season. And, you know, I guess they, you know, they say he's been down in the flower shops. Apparently the flower shop is is not up where where Frank and Claire normally are. So we wouldn't normally see him. But then he's just leaving and doesn't really, you know, it's not like like he's mad at Frank, but it doesn't seem like Frank really did anything. Yeah. Are you team Freddy or team Frank here? I think Frank was or I think Freddy was a little out of line. Um, You know, I, I. like I, I know Frank didn't treat him well, and when Frank asked him to if he'd cook him some ribs before he left, I just like face palmed at that point. I was like, "No, Frank, what are you doing? Like, why are you know you're just going to set him off?" And that's exactly what happened. Hmm. Um, but you know, Frank did get Freddie a pretty good gig working in the White House. I gotta imagine. I think we talked about this last year. You know, working in the White House, even as a gardener, you got to make pretty decent money. Okay, well, let's just take the good and the bad of the Frank and Freddie interactions through four seasons of House of Cards. So Freddie was a small business owner back in season one. And you would imagine that Frank Underwood, you know, brought some business in, even though Freddie would have to close up the place. But I'm sure he was compensated well enough for his time with Frank Underwood. So that was all through season one. And then in season two, we get to the point where Vice President Underwood hires Freddie to come and cook ribs for Walker. And Walker's like, oh, my God, these, these ribs are so good. Uh, I should bring, you know, we should cater all of the evil corp uh, functions uh, <laughs> with this. Uh, really, this is great. And he's, ah, I knew you'd like it. And then we get to the point where then there's like a report that comes out that was it Freddie was a felon? Uh, Freddie's son was a or felon. Freddie's son was a felon. Yeah. And that was the issue. And then Freddie's son ends up going back to jail because somehow of his involvement with Frank. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that um, Freddie's son uh, flashed a gun. Yeah. And that's what ended up sending him back to jail. But even before then, Freddie had a deal to franchise Freddie's Barbecue. And he was he had a really big deal here. He was going to make a lot of money franchising his restaurants out. And was that Um, from Frank, though? I think Frank helped set that up. Yeah. Yeah. But I think from just from the press of Frank might have mentioned Freddie's barbecue and it got a lot of people going there. And then that's when Freddie got the offer. So in Freddie's mind, he got that offer that that was from his hustle that that offer came in. And then from his involvement with Frank, then his son ends up going back to jail and they have to close down Freddie's barbecue store. And then Frank is like, oh, Freddie, don't worry about it. I'll get you a job working at the Oval Office. And uh, he ends up being a gardener, which then ends up turning him into working at the flower shop. So I don't know. I guess that Freddie probably blames Frank for ruining his family and also ruining his business. And Frank is like, what are you talking about, Freddie? I got you a job. Yeah. And I think, you know, Freddie just doesn't feel like an equal to Frank. And, you know, by, by asking Freddie to cook him ribs before he leaves, even though, you know, Frank might've really meant that is like, this is something that we've shared together. We've always shared, you know, me talking to you while I'm eating ribs and, and we both enjoy this. It, it was more of a one way partnership, I think. Uh, than Frank realized. Right. In Frank's mind, I think that for Freddie, wow, what a treat. I can't believe the president is uh, being super friendly to me, that uh, this is my lucky day, that this person from you know high society who was in the Congress, who was the vice president, who's now the president, you know, this guy is kind of like my friend. And so Frank feels like that, you know, Freddie should probably be super appreciative to him. And Freddie's like, ah. 
It hasn't been that great. Yeah. I feel like if, if Obama called me right now and said, hey, come over to the White House and, you know, make me a burger or something like that, I'd be thrilled. Like, oh, my God, the president wants me to make him dinner. But I also can definitely see from Freddie's perspective that, you know, it could be demeaning. And, and Frank has probably totally ignored him since the last time we saw Freddie in the White House. You know, we haven't seen them interact in, at all this season. So, you know, has Frank been ignoring Freddie and, and Freddie just feels like, like Frank hasn't treated him well. And then when he does treat him, all he wants is for him to cook him ribs. And, you know, it's just it's just demeaning. And, and you know, I'm sure there's, um, you know, definitely so, some uh, racial elements of that as well, too. You know, I saw President Obama hanging out with uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda yesterday. Is that how uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda feels about Obama? Yeah. You know, he just calls her up when he wants to see a live <laughs> Hamilton performance. <laughs> Lin is a, is a man. Oh, well, all right. Sorry. <laughs> I, I only I don't know that much about Hamilton. I just know it's very hard to get. It's very hard to get tickets. But apparently the president just gets performance at his house whenever he wants. <laughs> what would you rather have tickets to Hamilton or a plate of Freddy's ribs? Mm, well, you could still get tickets to Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, allegedly, yes. Yeah. Somehow, like they're tough to come by. They still exist. Freddy's ribs seems like uh, that ship is sailed. Yeah. What What was the hashtag yesterday? Bam for ham. Yeah. yeah. I guess that that works both ways. <laughs> See, you know about the hashtags. You just don't know about uh, Lin Manuel Miranda. Yeah, I, I have Facebook, and there's the little trending news thing in the corner <laughs> of Facebook. So you know the headlines. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I read the headlines. <laughs> yeah, Over so, my plate of apples. <laughs> Well, we have where Freddie is, uh, he's going to be leaving the president and, uh, he's like, Oh, Freddie, why don't you come by one last time and make me ribs? And, uh, you know, Freddie is like totally just annoyed about that. He's like, Oh, I could come by and make you ribs one last time. Uh, how about no, how about no, thank you. And he's like, you're being very disrespectful to me, Freddie. Uh, and then Freddie just goes uh, like full on into, uh, calling him, uh, I don't know how Claire, What's up with you? <laughs> he kind of says it under his breath, too. But, you know, loud. It was very passive aggressive. Loud enough for Frank to totally hear what he said. Yeah. Is she comfortable with this? And then uh, basically Frank like goes uh, like, hey, don't call me Frank. I'm Mr. President to you. How dare you, <laughs> Freddie? Yeah. And then Freddie just drops all the MFers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he, goes, he goes nuts. I don't know how Claire handles it. Uh, and he says, uh, you know what, Mr. President? You're an MFer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He says, uh, no, my bad. You're an MFR, Mr. President. <laughs> yeah. Really? Wow. Drop the mic. You'd think that like some security person would be nearby and overhear some of this uh you know, uh like uh, we got somebody on the flower staff call uh, you know, chewing out the president <laughs> right now. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> like you you think that there'd be some sort of like people somebody would hear that. Somebody just runs in and tackles Freddie. Probably not an uncommon thing in the Underwood White House, though. People calling him an MF for all over the place. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's true. I mean, I guess you know they got to just relax security. They're like, oh yeah, it's just uh, it's it's just Monday. Don't worry yeah. about it. Seems like that Frank hasn't seen Freddie since he got shot. Freddie also wasn't like, oh, Mr. President, how you doing? Yeah, he, feeling okay. He, no, he's he's really mad at he's really mad at Frank. And I don't think he realizes that uh, running the country and campaigning to be president and healing from a gunshot wound and also being kind of a behind the scenes slick uh, 
weasel guy is busy. It's busy work. Frank's working like quadruple duty right now. Much like Freddy's recipe for ribs, he's just been slow cooking and marinating on this for a couple of years. About like, yeah, Frank really screwed me over. Man, I was this close to doing my own thing. I'm going to Georgetown and work at the flower shop. Had enough of this. (laughs) Four more years, my ass. But but Frank is the smoker. Yeah, Frank's the smoker here. Yeah. So what about Claire on the campaign trail? We talked about her in regards to Yates. How do you think she's doing out there on the trail? You know, Claire is is having a tough time talking about love in front of Yates. Yeah, she's nervous. Yeah, she so she keeps her speeches very formal. Um, but luckily, Claire still has time to get her nails done while she's having these like deep conversations about love with Yates. You know where I really thought this was going to go? That there was a moment where she's talking to Frank. She's like, oh, I'm really tired. And Frank's like, okay, Claire, well, why don't you get some sleep? She's saying she just let Yates go and he's not going to be around anymore. I just have one more interview to do before I turn in for the night. I really thought we were going to see that interview. And she was going to, because she was tired, like say some sort of a flub about like, uh, you know, I, it's, you know, I really love Thomas. I mean, Frank, you know, something like that where she was going to slip up because she was so tired. Oh, man, a Freudian slip. Yeah, some sort of Freudian slip because I thought they were making such a big deal about how she's getting so exhausted on the campaign trail and she had to do one one last interview. Yeah, I thought that that Frank telling her that she was tired uh, was kind of his way of tipping her off that, like, I know what's going on. Hmm. Yeah. Why are you so tired, Claire? (laughs) Yeah. Who's who's uh, dreams have you been running through? Whose mind have you been running through all day? (laughs) Yeah, why why aren't you getting enough sleep at night, Claire? <laughs> Somebody snoring and keeping you up? Yeah. Yates okay. the snorer. Let's talk about Doug. Let's Ugh. we have to. We have to. Doug crazy crazy Doug is totally off the bandwagon of being one of the same normal people on the show. He's in full-on obsessive Rachel mode and why? Why is he so obsessed with Laura Moretti? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it definitely comes from some of the feeling of of guilt that he has about her losing her husband. But I don't think it hurts that, you know, like we saw with the physical therapist last year, she does sort of look like Rachel. Uh, I think that's a bit of a stretch. I mean, he met her in the same restaurant where he I used mean, I to think meet that Rachel. Maybe, uh, you know, Sierra Moretti might look a little more like Rachel than Laura <laughs> yeah. Moretti. Yeah, that'd be true. But, you know, a, a younger Laura Moretti probably a looks younger, a lot. <laughs> yeah, a younger Laura Moretti might look like Rachel. <laughs> but wh- where is this going? What is this? Does Doug think he's going to date Laura Moretti? <laughs> I mean, I think he does. And, um, you know, that that just can't end well. And, and like I said in the episode last time, you know, a $5,000 donation to Laura Moretti's website was going to raise some flags and it got a personal phone call from her. I mean, is there any sort of similarity that you could see? Like, is this like a pattern for Doug? Like, could you make a comparison on a through line where the whole thing with Rachel, like, did he feel some guilt as to he got Rachel into the mess that she was in and then felt responsible for her and had to take care of her in some way and sort of keep her like hold up in that hotel room? And then in the same way, he feels like he's responsible for what happened to Laura Moretti and now he needs to take care of her. Yeah, I definitely think that. And I think, you know, I bet you could track Doug's throughout the series. You could track Doug's obsessive behavior, whether it's being obsessed with a person or um, getting rage and getting enraged by things or drinking. Um, 
you could probably track each of these behaviors with times when he's done things where he feels guilt and he has to much like Frank, he needs that release valve. Okay. So crazy Doug, he really wasn't in the Underwood storyline at all, but what's his reaction going to be to this new third wheel in Yates? I mean, he already feels threatened with Leanne and Leanne is just working for them. So I can't imagine that he's going to be thrilled about the Yates thing. Um, and, and you know he'll find out about it. I'm, I'm curious if the rest of the team will also find out about it. I mean, I think that as soon as he gets back to work, I mean, he's around the Underwoods more than any other person. You would think he's going to know about it. Now, if, interestingly enough, that Doug was sort of in exile all through season three. He really wasn't around the Underwoods very much up until the season finale. So he really didn't have any interaction with Yates in season three. Yeah, we haven't seen much um from him and yates even this season well he did go when he was at like that bar and say like hey what's going on with that book like, knock it off we don't like it oh that's true that's true um you know he doug's threatened by these things and i think he's not gonna love he's not gonna love this he's not gonna love it the way claire's gonna love it and uh now now we've got kind of four members of the team that work for frank and claire we've got seth we've got doug we've got leanne and we've got yates um okay. and you know, I don't know if somebody's going to end up being the loose thread or somebody's going to get pushed out, but um, I don't see those four playing too nice together. I want to talk about the weirdo data guy that Leanne brought into the whole mix. And McAllen. he's McAllen. Yeah, McAllen 12. He's back in this episode and he meets up with Frank at the White House. They sort of sneak him in. He's in that same sort of room where Frank met with Petrov and met with Dunbar in season three. And they're sort of talking about what they can do. Zach, do you understand what the plan is here right now? You know, I think it has to do a lot with tracking people and what they're saying. But he he talked about how he can use the he can use the tool for tracking people like a spoon and he can use it to stir his drink. He can use it to eat soup or he could use it to do heroin, um, which is that the damaging part uh, and they're going to use it to, to track Ico and to track what Ico, you know, what people are saying about Ico and what Ico is saying um, in their own communications. And as a way to, as a way to know what their next move is. He's the one that first says here, let's go beyond marriage. He also talks with Leanne about how, you know, I could tell you that people like music, but I'm not the composer. I can't make the music. But it does seem as though he comes up with an original idea here that Frank and Claire sort of key into. And he also talks about how that the Conways are what everybody wants to be, but Frank and Claire are what everybody wants to become. They can go beyond marriage. And so he's like putting that idea out there. I don't know how he got that from the data. Yeah, apparently people must be searching the word beyond a lot in mm-hmm. terms of searching for the Underwoods. It, it does seem like a very weird keyword and, and one that, um, you know, I probably would tell him to go back and, and bring me something a little bit better than beyond. But, <laughs> um, you know, to infinity and beyond, I guess. Yeah, didn't really speak to me, but that's what uh, this guy is saying. But, you know, it's interesting. He talked about the spoon. He said, OK, in English, Frank says, uh, t- explain it to me one more time. Uh, okay, the spoon, it could stir the coffee, I could eat my soup, I could, uh, you know, boil heroin. Also, when Doug was in the diner with Laura Moretti, uh, Laura Moretti tells us that Tony Moretti used to love greasy spoons. Is is that any coincidence here to the mentions of spoons? Or as Joel Hooper will tell me tomorrow on Twitter, <laughs> uh, is a spoon just a spoon? Or there is no spoon? Oh, man, there's no spoon. Um, 
you know, I, I didn't even, I didn't pick up on the, the spoon being in there twice. Um, it is interesting to, to use those three examples though, that you can, you can stir so you can mix things up. You can eat soup. So you can help yourself. You, you know, if you're sick, you eat soup. And Claire uh, and Yates. I'm pretty sure that Yates was the big spoon when we saw him in bed with Claire. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, yeah, that, spoons everywhere. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I just figured Greasy Spoon was a slogan, and, and people say Greasy Spoon. And um, shout out to Ben's Chili Bowl in House of Cards. Ben's Chili Bowl is good. If you ever come to DC, I uh, recommend it's a real you check place. It out. Yeah, it's like a uh, like a hot dog. You can get like chili dogs there. It's a good uh, it's a good greasy drunk food place. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but it's a it's a it's a DC establishment. They actually have a mural of Bill Cosby on the side of their building. Uh, they're, not, they're not taking it down. <laughs> they're not taking it down. <laughs> nope. Okay, not disavowing Bill Cosby. No, they do not disavow Bill Cosby. <laughs> At least last I heard, they they might have they might have eventually know. disavowed. No, okay, uh, we'll see. We'll see where that goes. Did you notice too during the Doug and Laura Moretti meeting? It, it seemed like she was covering up her wedding ring. I thought she was actually going to take it off. You don't think Laura Moretti likes Doug, do you? I mean, you know, he brought her flowers. It was a nice date. You know, yeah. swipe right on Doug. Flowers, five k. So maybe Doug's a catch. I feel like that was a storyline in season three of, you know, will Doug ever settle down? Will Doug start a family? Maybe he's just going to hijack Tony Moretti's family. Yeah. I mean, talk about feeling guilt. He like hijacks Tony Moretti's family. And then, you know, eventually he's going to want to come clean to Laura and her daughter. So we'll see. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> you want to get into some of these questions? Oh, yeah, let's do it. Um, oh, I also, you know, I, we talked a little bit real quick. Um, we talked a little bit about the dogs um, being mentioned in this episode. And, you know, we had it at least three times where we had um, we had dogs mentioned in this episode. We had dogs mentioned with Kathy Durant. We had Freddie say you can teach an old dog new tricks. And we also had Hammerschmidt talk about wanting to not have a dog barking at him. So um, the dog metaphor is alive and well in this episode. All right, let's get into our chapter 50 questions. Can you believe it? 50 chapters so far down for House of Cards. Yeah, it's, it's uh, what is that? Is that the golden anniversary for 50? <laughs> yes, <laughs> 50 times. Okay, uh, let's go to Steph B, who uh, starts off by saying, uh, what was Claire going to say to Frank at the end of that call? I thought she was going to say, I love you, but she couldn't. She was going to say, uh, 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 nothing. Yeah, I thought she was going to say, I love you as well. No, what I, did you I think she was going to say? I thought she was going to say something about Yates. I thought she was going to come Yates. clean. I thought she was going to tell him what was going on. She's like, I love Yates. <laughs> yeah, I think she was going to tell him about what was happening, and then she decided not to. Frank yeah, sussed it out. He still picked up on it. Yeah. It's because she was so tired. She wasn't at her best. She wasn't at her best. Let's take a question from, uh, <laughs> this is from uh, signed Freddie Hayes says, uh, is this episode about unconventional love going beyond what people define as love and relationships? We have Doug Stamper and Laura Moretti. Is this the beginning of Doug's love story? And what about the unconventional relationship between the Underwoods and Tom Yates? Where do you see this going, or is it all going to crash and burn? Sincerely, uh, making my guest appearance, the loyal old dog, Freddie Hayes. <laughs> um, you know, nothing nothing can be good on this show. So um, I see neither of those these relationships ending well. And um, I just hope that people aren't hurt. Yeah. And who knows? The way that we've seen Yates be such a, 
um, a a lover of many people. I could see him and Laura Moretti getting together. Who knows? <laughs> he doesn't need to write that book. <laughs> I mean that that book writes itself. The uh, Laura Moretti loses her husband yeah. and searches for love, and and some mysterious donor to her husband's charity shows up bearing flowers, right, and talking to her about greasy spoons. And the next thing you know, it's it's love. The name of that book hitting bookstores uh, next Christmas: Live or Let Die. Yeah, <laughs> we have our hashtag. All right. <laughs> <laughs> good soundtrack too to live or let that okay. oh yeah <laughs> uh spencer y wants to write about the ico mind games between frank and conway and the generals and happiness if frank captures the ico leader does this help him win over some of the conway supporters to cut into the governor's lead is this the relevance of that subplot also do you think that brock cart uh will get so disgusted with the frank and conway battle that he ends up stepping down as the vp running mate or is uh, he stuck where he is. I thought it was also interesting that we brought back the Civil War figures, or I guess that they were sort of World War II soldiers. I'm not sure what war those uh, soldier toys were from, but we saw Frank working on that during season two, where he had the sort of the big thing set up in his house. I thought it was interesting to see that brought back at a time when Frank is considering moving real soldiers on the ground into harm's way. He's not playing with toy soldiers anymore. Yeah, and and if you remember in season two, we talked a lot about how that Civil War diorama represented all the work that Frank has done throughout the season to get to where he is. And then he smashes the table at the end of the episode um, and to show that they kind of that he can shatter something that's been so that he's worked so hard on. Do you think that the general will then turn on Conway and say, I can't do this anymore. Conway is blocking this good plan. No, I don't think so. I think I think the general is where he is um, and he's going to have to learn. He's got to get his hands dirty if he wants to succeed. Also, Spencer writes about partners in life. I thought it was great for aid in the data scientists to describe the Conways as what American families want to be. But Underwoods represent what they want to become. What would be the most strategic way for Frank and Claire to use this representation to win American voters over and cut into the Conway lead? Um, I think, you know, what they're what they're kind of doing already is just revealing things about their their relationship and how it's not always perfect, because, you know, there are so many people in this country who don't have the perfect relationship. We saw the the family in South Dakota that seemed like they were they should be really happy, but they're being bullied by people in South Dakota who are um, who are not happy that they're Frank Underwood supporters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think Frank and Claire can continue to show that even despite the problems they have, they've learned how to create a life that works for them, um, even if it is unconventional. And and there are so many people with with unconventional love in this country. So it's inspiring. Yeah. And maybe they could just sort of like pile on like, oh, they're so perfect, aren't they? Aren't they just like the homecoming king and queen? Well, uh, screw them. Yeah, um, they are they are the the all American family. But, you know, again, we do have the, the wife with the British accent, you know, just yeah. cutting a little sliver into and nothing wrong with British accents. Nothing no. at all. I actually love British House accents. of Cards is based on a British show. They all had British accents. Oh, maybe she was in the original House of Cards. Oh, Who knows? Did she play Schmoopy Conway in the original House of Cards? <laughs> I don't know. And, and uh, you know, the killing was based on a Swedish show. And I think. Uh, Joel Kinnaman was in both, if I'm oh, not mistaken. Good for him. I might, I might be completely wrong there, but okay, we'll fact um, check that. 
One of the things I do love about Conway, though, is just the way that they film him. Throughout the whole season, they always film Conway looking up. And it just makes him look really big. I've talked about this before. Um, and it reminds me, um, I don't know, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen Citizen Kane, but in Citizen Kane, they play a lot with the angle that uh, that the main character is filmed at, where he's filmed from below to make him look really big when he's in power. And then he's filmed from above when he's at his lower points and he's not as powerful. All right. And then finally, Johnny De Severa. And he can fact check all that stuff for us uh, some t- at some point before we get to the end of this run. He wants to know, what's the where Remy is telling Tom not to ignore? He says, you know, the who, how, the what, the why, but you don't know the where. Yeah, I caught that, too. I thought that was a really weird thing to say. You know, the maybe the where is just telling him that he's on the right track with with checking Meacham's records and his travel logs. I mean, that's definitely a where. Hmm. I don't, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I thought that he was saying, like, again, I might have missed this. I, I thought he was saying that, you know, the where, what's the what, the who, the, like, it seems like that's it's like if you're playing Clue, it's like, I know this happened in the conservatory, but I don't know anything else to happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, Frank Underwood with the exhaust pipe in the garage. Yeah, that's right. Our hashtag uh, liver let die. Yeah, liver let die. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What a fun chapter 50 recap. We are going to be back with chapter 51. Only two episodes left. Can you believe it? Um, I, you know, I, I can and I can't. I feel like we're really heading towards something. We've got a lot of pieces out there. You know, I think the, you know, if we just take stock of kind of what are our big threads that we have hanging out there as we head into these last two episodes, you know, we've got the election, obviously. Um, we've got this new relationship with Frank and Claire. We've got Hammerschmidt. We've got Ico. You know, do are there any other big kind of kind of things that we're seeing hitting ahead before the end of the season? Did you say Yates? We have Yates. Yeah. Um, we have we have Leanne, and we have Leanne. We have Doug's new relationship. And again, we won't end all these stories. Like we're not, it's not a series finale coming up in two episodes, but a uh, lot of stuff to work out to make us not annoyed when we go into the off season. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think. We're just we're especially as the showrunner is leaving. I think we will hit kind of a turning point in this show. Um, So I'm excited to see what happens. Yeah, it would be odd, I think, for the showrunner to leave and then have a bunch of things really open ended. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so we're going to be back with chapter 51 coming up next. Uh, Get your questions in for 51 and 52 at HOC at postshowrecaps.com and then We're going to start to talk about this. Last season, it was a big campaign promise that I dropped the ball on. uh, I'm not going to let that happen to you. I made a mistake, (laughs) but I'm going to correct that mistake because we are going to do a season four postseason wrap up of everything from season four and take a bunch of your questions. Maybe we'll do it live, but we're going to we'll set a date by the end of the time we get to chapter 52. And then we have to do it because it'll be on the books. It'll be scheduled. I put it in my calendar. And we won't be on able our, to change on, our, it. on your polyhop calendar, right? Polyhop. It'll be, we'll set it up by uh, my polyhop calendar and then we'll be good to go. I'm excited. I think, you know, I have a feeling we're gonna have a lot to talk about after this season's over. And I'm glad that we're going to get a little bit of a chance to, to digest on it. Let the listeners get a chance to digest on it and, and talk about where we go from here for season five. Sounds good. Looking forward to reading what you guys have to say on post show recaps.com. If you're not subscribed to Post Show Recaps, go ahead and uh, check us out. Search for Post Show Recaps 
in your favorite podcatcher. Great job, Zach Brooks. Follow him on Twitter at BrooksZA. I'm at Rob Cistrino, and we'll be back soon. Take care, everybody. Bye.